Okay, I think uh, it's a few minutes past the hour, so we'll get started and hopefully those of us, those who are joining uh, late will, will not take too long. Um, but welcome, uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is the third Fairbank Center Modern Channel Lecture of the semester. And actually a special thank you to everyone who is joining us because uh, when we originally planned this, I guess neither Elena nor I realized this is gonna be in the middle of AAS. So we realized there are several other distractions at this point. And uh, just now Elena actually told me that not only are we competing with AAS, we're actually also competing with a talk that's being delivered by her uh, doctoral advisor. So, so thank you, especially for all of you who are actually joining us today. Uh, my name is Arunav Ghosh. I teach uh, modern Chinese history in the history department here at Harvard. Uh, I'm also the convener of, of this series. Uh, before I introduce Professor Songster, uh, I thought I'd uh, put in a quick plug for our final talk. Uh, in the series this semester, uh, which will be three weeks from now on April 13th, when we uh, will welcome Joe Tamua, Prof Professor Joe Tamua from Nanyang Technological University, and she'll be delivering a talk entitled Leveraging Liminality, Shenzhen and the Origins of China's Reform and Opening. Uh, and uh, for those of you uh, who some of you may have noticed that she just published a paper in the Journal of Asian Studies uh, precisely on this theme. So we're really looking forward to hearing more from her about this exciting ongoing work. Uh, and you can actually find information about this on, on the Fairbank Center website, and as well as uh, information on how to register for the talk. Uh, but today, I'm, I'm, I'm really delighted to, to welcome Professor Elena Songster uh, to the Fairbank Center. Uh, professor Songster is a professor of history in the history department at St. Mary's College of California, where she teaches courses on Chinese, Japanese, Asian, and world history. Uh, she is a historian primarily of modern China and received a PhD uh, from the University of uh, California at San Diego, uh, and much of her work has focused on, on environmental history. And although uh, today we'll be hearing about one particular kind of uh, special megafauna, uh, the panda, uh, I actually first came to know, uh, I first met Elena and came to know of her work uh, through a, a totally different megafauna, uh, the snow leopard. Uh, several years ago, both she and I were involved uh, in a collaborative project on the histories of science and technology uh, in China and India. Uh, and our papers were then eventually published uh, as the first uh, volume of uh, PJHS themes, the British Journal for the uh, History of Science themes. And, and for that volume, Elena co-authored a paper with Mike Lewis, a fantastic paper on the attempts to conserve the snow leopard that sort of uh, went between sort of the Chinese and Indian, sort of cut across the Chinese and Indian border. So I would highly recommend people uh, check that paper out as well. Uh, these days, uh, Elena is working on uh, the history of medicinals found in nature. And she has also written in the past on the history of, of forestry in China. Uh, before I, I hand things over to her, I thought I'd just a couple of, couple of quick points about procedure uh, format. Uh, Elena will speak for about, about 35 minutes, uh, and then we'll follow that with Q&A for roughly the same uh, amount of time, uh, finishing by between 5.15 and 5.30. Uh, if you have questions, uh, please type them up in the Q&A, uh, through the Q&A function uh, within Zoom. Um, and I'll try and make sure, I'll try and curate and make sure we get to as many questions as possible. Uh, yeah, and of course, please feel free to type them up during the talk as well, uh, and, and, and we'll be able to take note of them. Uh, and I would also request before you type your question to please briefly identify yourself, your name, and, and if you want your institution as well. Uh, that being said, we are recording this, so if for any, if for any reason you prefer not to, uh, not to identify yourself, you're of course welcome to, to stay anonymous. Uh, okay, so with uh, with all those minor details aside, um, Professor Songster, Elena, welcome again, and, and over to you. Thank you so much. I really would um, like to thank um, Professor Arunab Ghosh in particular for inviting me here in the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies for hosting me. 
Um, importantly, I also want to thank, thank all of you who are here to uh, listen to this talk and hear about my scholarship and take some time to think about people and pandas and the earth. And on that front, I want to respectfully acknowledge that I am Zooming to you from the Bay Area, which is California's East Bay where I live and work. And this is the ancestral land of the Soklin Bay Miwok tribe and the present day land of the Ohlone groups, including the Ramai Tush groups and the Muwakma Ohlone tribe. Now my book, um, Panda Nation, is a book about pandas, and it's also a book about the history of the People's Republic of China. And it is both in part because it has to be, um, but also because the panda has proved to be a really remarkable tool for accessing interesting questions about modern Chinese history. And one of the reasons it is able to do this is because it really serves as a, um, almost like a mirror. And in that it reflects the things that are happening around it really well. Um, and because there are a lot of things that people just aren't willing to say or write down in documents, but they can't help but do in, in reaction to the panda or the image of the panda. And then it gives us access to greater insight about what's happening at that particular juncture. As an example of this, in the 1980s, there was a mass panda scare, a starvation scare in China. And at that time, it's fair to say that people were not willing to say that this sudden upsurge and um, inflow of cash from around the globe and from all different corners of China uh, for the sake of saving this um, panda, which is seemingly in risk of starving, um, even though the money was not clearly, it wasn't clear how the money was going to be spent and there wasn't much accountability for it. Um, this is what happened. And those officials who were on the receiving end of this sudden inflow of cash were just not capable of turning the cash fountain off. And uh, in spite of the fact that there were scientists on the ground saying the problem wasn't really real, they couldn't bring themselves to tell the public that this animal um, wasn't in danger of starving and that these people from old people to young children didn't actually need to send in their hard earned money and lunch money because it was just too good an opportunity to receive. And so this revealed a lot of really interesting things about that particular point in Chinese history. Not simply that there were quite a few of corrupt people in the various ranks of government officials, but also that it unveiled that there had been this very interesting shift in the way that both the government and the general population was viewing nature instead of in the past, the way it had been portrayed as being something that was a well of resources that was best if retooled for socialist state building, suddenly nature was being perceived of as something potentially vulnerable and in need of protection. And not only that, there seemed to be this shift in whose responsibility it was to protect it 
by the early 1980s, it was more broadly seen as something of a shared responsibility between the government and the population. And moreover, this episode indicated that you could express nationalism by giving money. And so all of these things are really interesting ways in which the panda unveiled some important aspects of Chinese government and society. But in order to really understand how this came about and what it meant, you also had to spend some time in the digestive tract of the giant panda, which is decidedly as ugly and dysfunctional as corrupt politicians because it's not designed to intake bamboo in the first place, which is part of the problem. It has to take in a lot. So there's a lot of nitty gritty important details I can give you about the digestive tract of the panda. But the point is really that in order to understand the relationship between the giant panda and the emergence of China into this global superpower, and how those two things are kind of on parallel tracks, you also really have to understand the panda as an animal. And I would argue that in 19, um, before 1984, it would have been hard for something like this to have happened. Uh, because in the early PRC, the panda really was just that. It was just an animal. It wasn't a big national symbol. Now there was what some people would call panda diplomacy in the 1950s, but this didn't make very much of a splash in even the national news, let alone the international news. In 1957 and then in 1959, um, China gave a panda to the Soviet Union. And I had a colleague who was a Soviet historian, and she said she didn't even know about it. It just didn't, no one really paid that much attention to it. Um, there was one paragraph in the People's Daily about the event, and that was it. And then in 1965, there was a second gift of pandas, this time to North Korea. And at that time, um, the gift was a gift from the mayor of Beijing to the mayor of Pyongyang, and along with two pandas, according to the People's Daily, the mayor gave a hippopotamus, a mountain goat, and a white peacock to the mayor of Pyongyang. And since it was a gift of a panda with some other animals, it was really just seen as an animal at the time. And it was really uh, kind of a sister city type of relationship. This was not a state seen as a state gift or a big diplomatic event. Again, just a paragraph in the People's Daily and people went on. Uh, people hadn't paid much attention to this animal um, really until the 50s when this cute little guy that you see on the screen showed up in the Beijing Zoo. And even at that time when articles were being written about um, King Ping and the two other cubs in Beijing, they were actually having to describe what the panda was and what part of China it was from because it wasn't broadly recognized at that time. And so if in 1965, it's still being given away to another city by a mayor with a peacock, it really hadn't achieved 
the kind of symbolic status that we're so used to thinking about the panda as holding. And as late as 1965, it was really just still seen as an animal. And so how did it emerge to become a national symbol? That's actually like a whole nother talk's worth of information, but suffice it to say, it was not a decision that was made in a room as often happens with choosing mascots for the Olympics. That's how they choose those. They have a meeting in a room. Um, but rather this was something that emerged. It was a convergence of a bunch of small acts and renderings and impressions. And over time, um, the panda increasingly became seen as a symbol of China. At first, in the early 60s, it became um, used to modernize art as Mao had called the people to do. And so here you see these lovely renderings by artist Wu Zoren, which ultimately become um, stamps. And the most interesting thing I think about the story of how the giant panda transformed into a symbol of the nation is that at the center of this process was the cultural revolution. And it was increasingly used to represent the nation and represent China and express nationalism during this time because it was really durable and safe means of expressing nationalism. And it could express nationalism because the panda was unique to China. Um, and it was something benign without a clouded history. And so the fact that it hadn't been a, an animal of significant symbolic value in the past is part of what made it useful to express nationalism during the Cultural Revolution. And so over time, as the Cultural Revolution starts coming to a close and things start normalizing a little bit, is really when it takes on its new role as a symbol of China. And we see this transformed most dramatically with the first true act of panda diplomacy, which occurs with Nixon visit. Now, um, this of course was a monumental event. It was even called Nixon shock in Japan. And, um, it was really the brainchild of these statesmen. And this, the way that the panda got involved in this particular event, according to people I interviewed when I was doing research for my book, really seemed to be a little bit more of an afterthought. It wasn't something pre-planned as um, an obviously appropriate uh, thing to do, but among the many different activities that um, Mrs. Nixon was invited to partake in, including going to a Chinese restaurant and meeting with school children. She was also taken to the Beijing Zoo to observe the giant panda. And when it was decided that, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if we bestowed the United States with a pair of pandas as a gesture of you know, diplomatic goodwill, they then started scrambling to think of how do we express to the president of the United States what a significant gift this is. And that's when someone raised the idea of framing the giant panda as a guoba. 
And so you first see this phrase used in relationship with the giant panda at that particular moment. Now, what's interesting about this is that um, when the giant panda does first come to the United States, this, let me backtrack. This isn't the first time that a panda has been given to the United States. And I call this the first act of state diplomacy on the part of the People's Republic of China, but they were actually beat to it by the KMT. In 1941, uh, Song Meiling and her sister came up with this idea as an expression of gratitude to the United States for their help in the war of resistance against Japan. And so they sent two pandas to the United States in 1941. They had this heroic journey through um, enemy um, controlled waters and ended up landing in the United States. One only lived four years, but the other lived 10 years. And at that time, I think it's still fair to say that it didn't have that, that it was seen as a, something that the Americans would like, in part because the Americans actually had had several pandas in their zoos previously, thanks to these two um, kind of renowned panda trappers who had brought pandas back to the United States in the 30s. Um, and so they had been a huge splash in the United States, even while in China, they were just kind of animals that were not broadly known at the time. And so when we get to this more kind of news headline worthy gift that comes in, in 1972, the situation is completely different because at this point, it's not a gesture of gratitude. It's not a gift sent to a sister city in um, a friendly state. This is um, a gift that is supposed to represent new relations with a former enemy state that for which we had no formal diplomatic relations between these two countries. And so there was a lot of hoopla and pomp and circumstance that surrounded um, this particular gift. And in fact, if you look at US newspapers at the time, you'll get quotes like, the kind of security precautions tendered or given to these animals are those tendered to visiting heads of state. Or another article characterized the preparations um, as so full of import, it was as if Mao Zedong himself was coming to the US. They then had a grand welcome ceremony at the zoo the first lady attended and 1000 dignitaries attended. And when they finally opened it up to the public, a thousand people came to see the pandas within an hour. And so it was a grand success indeed, um, far beyond what anyone imagined it could possibly be. And this is when you first see the pandas being characterized as ambassadors and even explicitly so. One New York Times article wrote, until the two countries exchange ambassadors, it's not reasonable that one pair of American musk oxen and one pair of Chinese panda be spared accreditation to each other's capitals as temporary um, charge d'affaires. So you see that this language is being used in the press to talk about this exchange. 
and the work that these pandas are doing in terms of helping the two states warm relations um, and putting a friendly face on China for which many people were not completely ready to accept on either side of the Pacific Ocean. Um, I mentioned musk oxen. I thought you should take a look at what a musk ox looks like because it's not something unlike the ubiquitous panda that everyone knows about. And um, needless to say, I think that the United States got the better half of this deal. Um, Sun Yat-sen's widow said so much in uh, an interview about the whole thing, noting that's Nixon for you, we got a raw deal. But anyway, back to the particular um, event at the time, there was still a great, in spite of all of the pomp and circumstance and excitement that surrounded the arrival of the pandas, there are still a lot of people who were decidedly skeptical about it. And as they were waiting in anticipation of the pandas, things came to, um, people were expressing their skepticism about the quality of the pandas that were going to come, whether or not they would be two males and therefore could not mate, or whether they would send some old female who wouldn't be able to bear offspring. Um, I think it's very interesting that they were so skeptical about um, the mateability of the panda pair that was supposed to come and worried about being deceived in this way. Um, some of the skepticism was expressed with the first rendering of a Trojan panda, which you see in the National Lampoon, July of 1972. And so this commentary reflected real sentiment on the ground. So even while you had this sudden upsurge of welcoming and excitement, you also had a high degree of skepticism at the same time. Nevertheless, in spite of some of the skepticism that is expressed in the US press, it was decidedly a huge success. So much so that it was immediately repeated with another enemy state of um, with which China had even greater tensions, historic tensions with, and that is Japan. And so even the degree to which the two countries had greater tension, the press surrounding the um, normalization of relations between Japan and China was more pronounced and uh, more excited and there were easily 10 times as many articles in the newspapers about the new relations and about the panda gifts specifically. So of course, right after signing the joint communique, um, China then offered Japan a pair of pandas, knowing full well from their very recent experience with the United States that this was decidedly a good idea. I think that it's fair to say that when they offered it to the United States, they had no idea the degree to which it would be such a successful diplomatic tool. But once that had happened with the US, from that point on, the government of the People's Republic of China cannot claim innocence or naivete about the degree to which the pandas really serve the purpose of being kind of soft diplomatic power and um, a wonderful way to appeal to the publics of the states that they offered gifts to. And Japan was um, decidedly no exception to this. 
I talked about a thousand people coming in an hour to the um, display in the US Zoo. In Japan, not only did the public um, get incredibly excited, but um, the, um, the political parties also started using the panda as their own, um, as their own insignia. And um, with regards to the public interest, the first day that the pandas went on display in Japan, 18,000 came to view it and 100,000 people were turned away. So needless to say, this was incredibly popular in Japan as well. And as a result, they continued to give state gift pandas to other nations as well. This had an immediate effect on the wild population in China. Um, there were technically enough pandas in captivity at this time in China to give these state gifts to the first few countries. Um, but in the end, they gave state gift pandas to nine different countries and um, always in pairs. Only two of those were already in captivity. The rest were captured from, um, from the wild. But that doesn't account for the huge uptick. Um, immediately 18 were captured in 1973. Um, and um, the panda gifts continued to be given until 1982. So this huge uptick was really the result of domestic zoos being excited about putting pandas on display. And this was a really interesting side effect um, because this wasn't something that was necessarily anticipated by the government. They thought, hey, why don't we give some pandas to the United States? Then they saw what a fabulous decision that was and immediately repeated it with regard to their relationship to Japan. And then all of a sudden pandas started getting captured left and right from, um, from their wild range. And, um, and so interestingly, it's in the face of this that we see the pandas doing their first environmental advocacy work. In 1973, uh, there is seeming rejuvenated interest in um, precious species protection, which had been on hold for the vast majority of um, the Cultural Revolution. And, um, and so they start hold, some of these forestry officials start holding meetings about precious species protection. And, um, and discourage officials from trading endangered species for radios, cars, and televisions. So you absolutely should not do this. And then in addition to that, they actually wrote something a little bit more official and uh, created a new National Wild Animal Resource Protection Regulation in 1973. And in this, it states national first, second, and third level protected animals without exception are not to be exported for trade. Previously, there hadn't been any particular explicit rule about this. Only under necessary circumstances, and this is where you see um, this new policy being deferential to 
um, national politics. Only under necessary circumstances can first level nationally protected animals be given as a national gift and only under the central government's control. So this was a really brilliant caveat on the part of uh, forestry officials in China because what it did is it offered deference to the central government um, and even explicitly called um, pandas a tool for national and international importance and for befriending the people of other nations, recognizing that this was something that was of significant importance to the um, central government, yet um, took this opportunity to make this an exception and then protect not just pandas, but all first level um, protected species. And there were approximately 18 of those that were on a list already um, designated as such. And so here we have our first kind of intervention as, uh, as, of the giant panda as an advocate. Um, now the state gift formal acts of diplomacy come to an end in 1982 um, because in 1983, as I said, when I opened my talk, there was a broad scale panda starvation scare. And so there was a concern that perhaps it wouldn't be good to be giving away pandas if we didn't know how many we had and we didn't have enough to do that. And in order to protect the domestic population, China decided to stop giving them away and started a short-term loan program. Now, the first animals that went on the short-term loan was this pair that went to Los Angeles to help celebrate the Los Angeles Olympics of 1984. Now, the idea was that they still belonged to China. They would go back to China. So it wasn't depleting China of pandas. The problem was that this short-term loan program was actually a lot worse for pandas in many ways than giving them away. Um, and uh, decidedly because they basically went on tour, they're under a lot of stress, they couldn't reproduce. And it was making tons and tons of money for China, which was seen increasingly by environmental groups as um, uh, a, uh, an infraction on what uh, should be done with endangered species and protected species. And so a lot of opposition rose against the short-term loan program. And eventually it was brought to a halt in the United States first and then subsequently in other places. And uh, though it continued on in other places for a long time, uh, a new system was created, which was a, a long-term scientific loan. And so here you see a reintegration of um, the animal of the giant panda with this kind of diplomatic effort of exchange. The big difference with the scientific loans was that they had to be um, a, a form of scientific exchange. They were loans, they weren't gifts. Um, there was a lot of money involved that if you were going to be hosting these animals, you had to pay China usually a million dollars a pair per year. And this was in part um, to abide by the Convention on Trade in Endangered Species because one of its uh, criteria is that you don't use endangered species for profit. And instead this money was supposed to go directly to the wild species in China 
And there was usually a representative from the paying zoo who would be involved in um, learning about and witnessing the ways that the monies were getting spent in China for the benefit of the wild population or its habitat. And so this was a big shift in the ways that um, pandas were seen as um, instead of just tools for politics, they needed, it was a new understanding that they needed to be um, used to benefit the species itself. And so this reintegration of the animal um, enabled it to kind of advocate for its wild counterparts. And that was part of the um, design behind it. Um, some people asked, does this qualify as panda diplomacy? And I think that it does. It's just a re um, a rearticulation of what the significance and importance of it is and a recognition of a shift of understanding of the purpose of an animal in, um, in the relationship between these two countries. Um, but you don't really see um, the environment getting invoked in China um, with regards to kind of political acts of um, panda diplomacy until, except first through this um, process of rejection. And so um, this actually is jumping ahead a little bit. After China had closed its um, panda gift program, it continued to offer pandas to the island of Taiwan. And it did so in 1987. And at that time, the government was really concerned about accepting the pandas because they feared that since it was being offered as a gift, uh, accepting the pandas was um, accepting the, the notion that they were part of China. So um, it took them a while to come up with an what they considered an appropriate response. And they decided in 1988 to reject the panda gift offer um, on conservation for conservation reasons. And, but during the process of that effort, China realized that uh, the pandas were really popular on the island of Taiwan. So they kept offering and kept pushing and they offered pandas in 1989 and 1990 and 1997 and in 2000 and then put it to rest for a little while until the Anjan came to China on a historic visit in 2003 and they offered them again. And that's when they became a big controversial topic. Um, and again, the government in China, excuse me, the government in Taiwan at the time was um, uh, under the DPP control. Chen Shui-bian was the president and um, took this as an affront. Uh, it was called a charm offensive. And this notion of the Trojan panda rises again in a lot of the press exchange between Taiwan and mainland China. Um, but when they object to accepting the gift, they ultimately turn it down. They do so again on environmental reasons. Um, at first, Chen Shui-bian writes a long essay about how it would be um, environmentally uh, irresponsible to accept the pandas. And ultimately um, the 
Forestry Bureau in Taiwan um, rejects the pandas because Taiwan does not have the uh, facilities to properly care for them. And of course, this is criticized because um, this is seen as technical reason, a political choice that is um, given a technical and environmental excuse. But that, um, what's interesting is that when the pandas are finally accepted by um, Maingzhou in 2008, even while he was among the people criticizing um, Taiwan for rejecting the pandas previously, he also accepts them on the very technical and environmental basis, saying that in the interim years, uh, Taiwan has now achieved the expertise to properly care for the pandas and therefore is in a good place to accept them. So it's quite interesting that um, the environment is invoked in this particular tense case of panda diplomacy because it's much, um, much more acceptable to both reject and accept the pandas on environmental reasons rather than acknowledge the political tension that the pandas created. And so the panda has shifted again from being a kind of diplomatic tool of goodwill to being something that actually sowed a great deal of um, tension in this particular case. Um, but what turns out to be um, the worst thing anyone could say could do is to politicize the pandas. And both the people uh, in on the island of Taiwan and in mainland China accuse the other of this horrible crime of politicizing the pandas, when in fact, ever since it was realized in 1972, what a fabulous political tool the pandas were, they've been nothing but political. And so what's actually new and interesting about the exchange is the increased invocation of the environment as being something of relevance because that had been decidedly absent in the first, um, first phase of panda diplomacy and, um, and not something that the PRC had invoked very much at all. And it's a bit surprising in part because outside of China, it had been a central part of the panda identity. Ever since 1961, the panda had been used by the WWF as its main emblem. And around the globe, you see increasing um, utilization of the panda as a, um, a means of invoking environmental concerns. And so this was a famous art exhibit that would appear in random cities, major cities around the globe. The 1600, um, number of pandas, there actually were 1600 of these, um, was to represent how many pandas were estimated to be in the wild in China at that time, um, to help kind of spur environmental awareness for nature protection. Panda suits became very common form of invoking environmental protection in various types of um, protests, particularly it seems in climate change concerns though it seems that the polar bear might be a more apt one. You see it in Madrid and Copenhagen. And it's not really until 2010 that mainland China starts to recognize the benefits of embracing the panda as not just a symbol of China, but also a symbol of nature. 
And so here is kind of the first high profile use of the giant panda as an advocate for nature protection that you see um, kind of on display on a big global stage um, presented by the People's Republic of China in 2010. And then subsequently, there are other uses um, to promote solar energy. And, um, and then increasingly, the pandas also used more ironically or critically. And here you have people in Chengdu invoking the panda to help clean up the air. And then we see a return to the panda as an animal um, in political satire increasingly, invoking its um, animal tendencies and um, the ways that it's been used to mask China's real motivations. Um, and so its new position kind of on the global stage has become much more complex because it is because of the way that it's increasingly used um, as a form of satire, makes it more difficult for the um, giant panda to um, accomplish its original role as a diplomatic tool. And with that, I think I will close and take any questions anyone has. I have a lot more slides if you have questions about any of the other related topics. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Sangshu. That was really, really fascinating. Um, and uh, as uh, hopefully we'll, we'll start getting questions in the Q&A function. Yeah, so the, uh, just uh, to let everyone know, yes, please, the, uh, the floor is now open. So please feel free to type up your, your questions in the Q&A tab. Uh, and then, then we'll, we'll try and get to all of them. Uh, but as, as people maybe collect their thoughts, I thought I could, I could take, abuse my privilege and ask the first question uh, in some ways. As, uh, I was really struck by the ways in which you sort of identify very different kinds of approaches. In some ways, approaches that, uh, that seem to be self-conscious at other times that are not very self-conscious. And then there's a moment of realization almost, oh, that you know, this is the, there are other perspectives that can become important. Uh, but I wanted to, this is something I think you discuss in the third chapter of your of your book. But I was wondering if you can uh, tell us a little bit more about sort of within China, how would how do you see the stakeholders changing in, you know, what, what, who are the stakeholders and how do they change? And I have one one sort of a, a more specific thing that I have that sort of feeling this question really is, uh, are there sort of pre 49 or even pre, pre say 61, 62 perspectives? Uh, on the panda, which are much more local, you know, the, you talk about the Baima people and sort of, uh, you know, sort of the people who actually would have encountered the panda, you know, historically in, in, in centuries past. Did any of that, uh, those perspectives feed into whether it's the conservation side or whether it's a more instrumental sort of approach to the pandas? So where, where do you situate those perspectives? Sort of older, sort of, I guess, older approaches to, uh, to the panda. So pre-49, um, as you mentioned, the, um, the stakeholders really are generally more local with the exception of um, paleontologists, that um, there was a kind of slew of digs in the 1920s that involved um, foreign as well as local experts. And at that time, um, they had dug up panda fossils and, um, and that's part of the panda um, in pre-49, one of its big claims to fame was that they didn't know what it was. 
Hmm. It was initially um, sent by um, Herr David, who was a French Lazarist priest and naturalist, um, back to the Natural History Museum in Paris and just labeled simply as a black and white bear. And then once there, it after they examined the bone structure, that's how it got named the panda in the first place was that it was aligned with the, um, what we now call the red panda as being very similar because they're both bamboo eaters and their skull structure was really similar. And so it created this big debate about whether or not the panda was part of the raccoon family and like a big version of that or whether it was a bear. And so some paleontologists got involved in those debates um, and some even, um, and then the, the taxon taxonomy debates and whether or not um, it was maybe part of its own species that was separate. Uh, and some of this had a little bit of nationalist overtone, but um, for the most part, this was a pretty isolated debate that was outside of the realm of most people in China. Uh, it was kind of um, something that you could find in particular scientific journals. Um, and then with regard to local engagement with the panda, now this was something that um, the Baima people are one example because the panda's range um, extends through quite a number of different people's territory but that's the group that I um, interacted with and researched in my own, uh, my own study. And based on um, some of my interviews with Baima people about kind of what the panda meant to them before it became a national symbol, um, you know, interestingly, they, they had reverence for it. They considered it a peaceful kind of animal and, um, and it's always a little challenging when you're doing kind of oral histories to know, like, is this what they think I want to hear? Is this what they know is the appropriate thing to say? But what they did tell me was that it was a revered animal that they didn't see as a threat. And so they chose not to hunt it. Mm. Um, but it wasn't of any particular significance. It just was kind of there in their forests. And because it wasn't of any particular use, um, they didn't really have a reason to hunt it either. And so, um, but there is a case, um, a period when there are a number of pandas being hunted and that is during the 19, um, the Great Famine in the wake of the um, Great Leap Forward. And at that time, you can tell from the documents that the Baima people are the ones seen as blamed mainly for that episode. Um, and they undergo like education that this is a protected species. And so they didn't think it was an animal of any particular significance until they were told that it had to be protected. Um, and so it was just a local animal that becomes almost a burden, right? Because when they create a nature protection um, 
uh, and reserve for the giant panda, then that suddenly restricts their access to things like medicinal herbs and grazing places for their, um, their livestock. Um, but they don't seem to harbor resentment against the animal for it per se, but it's definitely not something, it, it's definitely serves as more of an inconvenience than um, something that was particularly revered by that group. Mm -hmm. um, it subsequently brings them tourism, which is another chapter in the story. Um, but, um, but I think more than anything, it brings the government's long arm into their territory in a way that probably wouldn't have happened without it. Um, so that's, that's the kind of changing um, narrative with regard to the Baima themselves. Um, in terms of other stakeholders, I think that um, the panda generally has, because it has become such of a national symbol, um, it does serve a purpose for a growing group of environmentally um, active um, groups that are domestic in China. Um, but some of them are also critical if they're particularly concerned about other species which they don't think gets enough attention. And so you see this on a global scale by some environmentalists and domestically as well. Great, okay, thank you. Uh, we, we have uh, questions coming in. Um, so uh, James Evans, who's a, a, a doctoral student here at Harvard asks, uh, what comparative examples do you see either temporally from Imperial China or geographically from other states uh, of the leveraging of animals in diplomacy? Um, um, temporally. Um, so in terms of um, other states, I think that, you know, nothing really is as successful as the giant panda. Um, and there is a fair amount of interest in other national animals, right? You see the koala and the kangaroo in Australia. Um, and uh, these are um, utilized symbols of the, of the nation. There are a lot of animals um, that are um, not as unique to the country. And so that stifles their efficacy in that regard. Um, in the case of India, you have the tiger, which is seen as a national symbol, but there are tigers in other countries as well. And the tiger's complicated because it attacks people. Mm -hmm. And so it's not always seen in the same kind of benign sense that um, pandas are. And in the case of Australia, I know that kangaroos are seen as um, pests. And so with regard to the relationship to the local population, I think the panda has a better reputation and it's also um, maybe not more unique than the kangaroo or the koala bear with regard to um, only existing in a single country, but it's more rare than both of those and um, more charismatic in a way as well. And so there are other examples of using animals for diplomacy, but 
it really doesn't seem that any animals are quite comparable to the panda, both in terms of its kind of um, appeal and, um, and the way in which the government can um, leverage it because of its status as an endangered species. That, that makes a lot of sense. As you were, as I was listening to you, I was thinking of, well, you know, in, in popular culture, what is the representation? And you, with the panda, of course, in the West, you have Kung Fu Panda as this sort of perfect uh, representation of what you just described, right? As friendly, non sort of, um, uh, is not, is not going to attack you and, and can be heroic in certain ways. And of course, with the tiger, what comes to mind is, of course, uh, Shere Khan in Jungle Book, who is, is very much the antagonist. So that's actually kind of interesting that he can, it's difficult to position the tiger in, in, in similar ways. Uh, we, we have uh, another, another uh, interesting question that is again, long durée. Are there specific uh, references throughout history, uh, dynastic as well as post-revolutionary of pandas being hunted or used for utilitarian purposes? And if so, uh, they would be grateful uh, for references uh, to track down. Um, not really. Uh, there is, um... I mean, I like to liken the panda to this Taoist um, notion of wong zhishu, which is it's it's a, a I think that it exists. Its existence is in part um, in gratitude the fact that it's pretty useless. Um, I have searched kind of ancient some ancient texts and a lot of panda scholars do actually even like all of the biologists pour through these texts trying to find references. Um, there's actually, um, let's see if I can find it. Uh, there was, um, most of those references are not uh, definitively the panda. Um, and it's in part because um, the panda doesn't have the same kind of bear bile that um, bears that have been used for that medicinal purpose um, have. And so they, they're not useful for that. Uh, there's a really funny episode in uh, George Saller's book about the last panda, um, about a panda that was accidentally caught in a trap. And so when he went to the trial of the peasant hunter, um, the hunter said that, you know, there's this big animal, you're not going to just throw away the meat, even though it wasn't his intent to actually catch a panda. But he said the meat tasted so bad that um, they gave half of it to his sister and the rest of the pigs. <laughs> but um, so it's not like particularly useful for eating. Um, it's fur, though adorable, is really coarse. And um, I found a few references that imply that it might have been used to help um, kind of be a rug or a mat on a bed to help stave off dampness. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of historic use and it doesn't um, appear in um, art or other um, as other forms of um, symbolism. Um, and so the, um, I think one of the reasons that the panda persisted is because it's a lot of actually, it's actually difficult to catch them because they're very reclusive. And then to what end? Uh, because they don't actually have a lot of use. 
And so I think because they weren't particularly useful, they didn't end up being uh, an important part of Chinese cultural um, relics in any way. And it is partly for this reason that it actually, um, I think is revered during the Cultural Revolution because it doesn't have any imperial baggage. Unlike say the dragon or the tiger or some of these other animals that you do see as symbolic and in traditional art. It's not associated with the imperial period which makes it a kind of fresh um, object for modernizing art during the 20th century. It, it, it's, um... I'm thinking of um, Mark Elvin's Retreat of the Elephants. And in some ways, you're, you seem to be offering an answer for why the panda survived when so many other megafauna didn't in China, right? So the elephant has disappeared, the tiger has disappeared, and so many other large animals have disappeared, but the panda survived in some ways. Of course, part of it has to do with the fact that this is not an area where the Chinese state was active or Chinese, you know, what we, you know, these, this is, these are definitional issues that they get tricky, I guess, but, you know, other communities were here uh, but it does explain to some extent perhaps why, given its reclusiveness and given given its relatively non-utilitarian nature, um, that uh, that it survives, whereas other like other megafauna don't. I don't know if that's a fair assessment, uh, but it just came to mind as as a possibility. Um, uh, we we have uh, another question from Asif uh, Ali Begovic, uh, who says many thanks for this fascinating talk. Uh, they're from Heidelberg University. Uh, and the question is, in the panda enclosure, Beijing Zoo still has a, has a gory display of a very crude knife as a skinning instrument alongside the skeleton of a panda. Uh, at least it was there uh, a year ago when, when they visited. Uh, I'm wondering if panda skeletons or hides were shared with other zoos as part of scientific collaboration. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? The whole thing or just the last bit? Just the last bit. Uh, so I, I'm wondering if panda skeletons or hides were shared with other zoos as part of scientific collaboration? Um, so historically or recently? I would imagine recently, or, or okay. if, if there are other instances, but I, I presume more recently. Um, I, don't, I don't have any personal knowledge offhand. I know that, um, that historically in the, late 19th century, that's when the first skeleton was sent off and introduced to Western science. Um, and then in the early 20th century is when the, um, the Roosevelt brothers, Teddy Roosevelt's sons, uh, were the, went down in history as the first Westerners to kill a panda. And they took it back and then a subsequent um, 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 another specimen and they put them on display in the Chicago Natural History Museum. And so you do have some occasions of, um, of this. Um, I don't know how prevalent the sharing of skeletons is. I know that there are a number of different, I think that uh, one of the studies of skeletal structure came out was based from the United States was based on the skeleton that was in the Chicago Natural History Museum. So I, I'm not under the impression that there's a great deal of that um, because I haven't run across a lot of examples of it. 
but um, there are a few studies. I think what more likely has happened is that when pandas have died, um, the skeletons have been in captivity. Some of the skeletons have been kept and studied. Um, but I know that hides were traded and sold in the 80s uh, for quite a bit of money. Um, and that was, there was actually some panda poaching for the sake of hides in the 1980s. And the punishment was capital punishment, which is technically still on the books, though um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a buyer for a panda hide today. Um, it would just be considered so uncool, right? <laughs> panda hide. Um, but six people were committed to capital punishment in the 1980s for panda poaching. With a relatively recent history. Um, I was. Uh, there's a, I have a question actually about uh, one of the images that you showed uh, of um, um, you know the, the a soft, cuddly, friendly panda, and then a screen, and then a much, much more uh, sort of uh, feral and, and scary uh, panda. Right, this one. Uh, and I was wondering. Uh, this is slightly. It's an unfair question to a historian, but if you were to sort of prognosticate a little bit, given how much has changed uh, in relations in, in sort of global diplomacy right now, especially in the past week, but more broadly in the past, say, couple of decades. Um, so do you, if you were to sort of prognosticate about how you see the panda figuring going forward, do you see it, it staying a very important element uh, of, of Chinese diplomacy and perhaps Chinese soft power? Or do you see, uh, do you see sort of uh, an, uh, these kinds of, this kind of sort of imagery also become really sort of fairly prevalent, which then undermines uh, a sort of soft, cuddly, much more friendly kind of image that is put forward. Yeah, you know, there's other images. There's one that I <laughs> also love, right? Um, this type of satire is increasingly popular. And even the notion of a panda hugger, which I have on one of my other slides, is, um, is a sarcastic statement, right? Like if it's a it's a derogatory statement to call someone a panda hugger because they are inappropriately friendly to China, which they shouldn't be, is the implication of that term. And then you have images like this and this, whoops, not that one, this one. And so it is increasingly being used in the sardonic sense. Um, and that does undermine some of the kind of benefits of the panda. But I think overall, there's enough of these type of images and the feelings that people get when they go and see that animals that, um, that no matter how many of these drawings are put out there, I think that these images will overpower them. But I think that because these images are so endearing, it uh, helps these cartoonists with these type mm -hmm. get get their point across, but I don't think that um, that they will like completely undermine the ability of the actual panda to do its diplomatic work. So I project that it will continue to be useful as a diplomatic tool, even if it is used in these kind of more sarcastic ways as well. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Uh, there, there's also a question about uh, sort of you have you, you. I think you touched upon it just briefly right now or a few minutes ago 
when, when you talked about the Cultural Revolution and how how that particular period, what what happens in the panda doesn't fit with uh, a lot of other sort of standard narratives. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about you know why it doesn't fit, but also more perhaps more about what it says, you know, or how it might help us rethink the the history of science uh, in in the PRC. You know, is it is it offering something? You know, how, how would you say what 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 are, what are the implications for sort of the history of the PR uh, history of science in the PRC? Uh, okay, and so um, so the giant panda's relationship with the history of science is actually pretty interesting um, because. Um, in terms of the Cultural Revolution, uh, it served a very interesting role in that during um, 1967 to 1969, which kind of some of the peak of radical cultural revolution activity. Um, let me see, I'm gonna just flash through here really quick. There's like a hundred million panda pictures, but there's one that I want to show you. Um, it was actually one, oh, there it is, this one. Um, there was a survey of the Wong Long Nature Reserve in 1967 to 1969. And so while the rest of China was experiencing tremendous upheaval and anti-intellectualism and anti-science, um, the state actually sent a group of scientists to panda territory to do a scientific survey of pandas in the first official um, panda reserve. And um, they didn't publish it until 1973, but they did all of the work in 67 to 69. And so the panda became an exception with regard to uh, cultural revolution era science. It was one of the forms of science that was allowed to continue. And, um, and when I was looking through the um, journals of the time, the other types of things that were allowed to continue during the Cultural Revolution, pardon me, were um, things like uh, expeditions up Mount Everest and surveys of the forest in Northeast China, things that were um, the characteristics of these types of scientific endeavors uh, were nation glorifying, and they were also kind of um, heroic expeditions. And so this kind of fell into that category. And so with regard to the cultural revolution and science, um, it fit the bill in terms of something that could help continue to promote um, this kind of heroic nationalistic science. Um, and you don't hear a lot about it again until the 80s when you have um, George Schaller coming from the United States and overseeing the first behavioral study. Now what happened in 67 to 69 was simply a panda survey. And then uh, when he comes in 1979 to 1984, it's a behavioral study. And um, and he really introduces a new kind of science to China. And so the subsequent, the people who worked with him, meaning mainly Hu Jinchu and Pan Wenshi, um, through their work with him are introduced to this kind of conservation, but what comes to be conservation biology. And they then take it to their students. And so you have this kind of 
new approach to engaging with nature through science that happens as a result of that. And, um, and the PAND is kind of the first introduction of this type of science. And so it really does have an impact on the history of science in China um, because it actually introduces a whole new field of science to, um, to the country. And then subsequently it's um, the students, the subsequent generations of students who have continued that on really taking it to new levels and have taken it to other species. And so, um, so it's had an important impact, I would say. Well, that, that is really interesting. I hadn't, uh, you know, I was, you answered at the end, I was gonna ask whether then it's it sort of translated or transferred to other, to a more broader approach to conservation in some ways. Uh, so we are, uh, we are approaching 515, but I see there's another question here. Um, and, and, and so maybe I'll, I'll also let out a final call. If there are any final questions, please please do type them up. We, we can take them together. Uh, but in the meantime, this is another anonymous attendee who's asking, uh, have there been other premature recalls of lone pandas similar to the event from Dallas Zoo recently? Uh, is there a pattern in the way China recalls pandas? Um, I would have to like review. Um, I can't say comprehensively no that there hasn't, um, but generally speaking, um, the government's pretty careful about the way that it um, handles those loan relationships. More often than not, there have been extensions, but um, what I have found more often is um, an assumption that there is more politics involved than there sometimes is, that sometimes some of these decisions are based on um, predetermined agreements and they happen to coincide with growing tensions between the country and, um, and China. And so it appears more political than it necessarily is. But, um, but I can't comprehensively answer that question without kind of like sitting down and looking at the various situations. But I have read a few accounts where there had been already an agreement that um, Cub was to be returned. And then that timing happened to correlate with um, tensions that grew up much more recently. And so the press portrays it as a reaction when in fact it was um, pre-planned. Right. That uh, maybe as a, as, a, as a last question and as a follow-up, I can ask, so what, what is sort of the logic that's driving, so clearly it's interesting to hear that there are very different kinds of sort of temporalities involved. There's just sort of negotiating an agreement, figuring out, you know, when something will happen, and then sometimes it can coincide with a diplomatic spat, or if there is some kind of diplomatic tension, then politicians can take advantage of what is already supposed to, to unfold. But is there, uh, is there a way in which uh, the period of the loan is decided, and is there other sort of from, a, from either the life cycle of a panda uh, or from other, you know, other kinds of sort of biological considerations that determine what an ideal uh, sort of loan period ought to be? Is there, is there a sort of clear sense of that or, is there, is that, or there, are there other kinds of things that are driving um, uh, the, the, the period that's chosen? Well, the scientific loans uh, grew up in the late night kind of became formulated in the late 90s and the San Diego Zoo was the first to have to kind of model it. And there is kind of a standard with a lot of variations. And the basic standard is that you have a pair that can mate um, and that they're loaned for 10 years. 
and that it costs the host zoo approximately a million dollars a year. And then um, if they have offspring, they actually pay extra to China. Um, and then the offspring are supposed to be returned to China in three years. And so that's kind of like the general formula. Now, um, I think that, you know, when we were in the short-term loan uh, period, sometimes those loans would be three months um, as barely enough time for pandas to kind of de-stress after travel, right? Um, and certainly not enough time for them to warm up to reproduction. Um, and so the idea of the 10-year loan is that it would enable possibly a few offspring to be born during that time, because even while they're technically not um, have breeding loan, like breeding isn't the purpose, mm -hmm. it is seen as um, beneficial to be able to facilitate it because they're trying to grow the captive um, population enough for it to be self-sustaining and uh, not need to pull any more out of the wild. Um, and so 10 years was seen as kind of a, a, an, enough time to be able to facilitate that and probably as much money as anyone could, um, could promise from the get-go as well. And then I think three years, the cub is old enough, like in the wild, they would be on their own by then. And so um, then they can return to China and then that's kind of helps diversify the gene pool in the China breeding program as well. Great, thank you. Uh, okay, I think we, we are at the end of our questions. We're also nearing sort of the end of our time here, but uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, a, a fantastic talk. And then also for telling us about other aspects of, of your book uh, in the Q&A. In the uh, so uh, thank you again. Please join me, uh, everyone, uh, in thanking the Professor Songster and uh, hope that we shall see you all uh, in a few weeks for Joe Tamo's uh, talk as well. So thank you. All right. Thank you.